as we often comment and say how pleasant and sweet it is to be able to assemble together as the God of heaven has ordained that we ought to do on the first day of the week. And for many of us, this is the second opportunity today. And we're always so thankful for the privilege, yea, the high honor it is to assemble in His name. We read in Psalm 26, verse 8, about the blessing that goes with those that assemble in the very habitation of the Lord. And that's what our desire is this afternoon. As you may notice on the wall to my left, we'll take for tonight for a few moments and revisit a very familiar scene from the days of the Old Testament, the book of Jonah. If you'd like to be turning in your Bible back to that fifth of the Minor Prophets, we'll take a few moments and I hope take from that study several lessons. We'll not do the entirety of that book in one lesson. I'm going to make a series out of this one. You might have gleaned that from the title. It's the first installment in our series of the book of Jonah. These introductory comments, I hope, will in fact bring us to appreciate at least some initial thoughts and comments. You may well notice that the Minor Prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, they often in fact are categorized as the Minor Prophets, but may we never think that that means they're unimportant. That word minor only means they're shorter. They are still just as inspired as the other books in the Holy Book of God, and so it is with the book of Jonah. In fact, the book of Jonah, to highlight the brevity of it, it only consists of four chapters. As you can well tell, just a grand total of 48 verses in the entirety of that book. And yet, as you and I will study it in succeeding weeks, we will find yet again that though that record may be familiar in some ways, there are timeless truths in it, features that can be of such great benefit even for us today. This book is a factual record. I realize the book of Jonah has been in the bullseye of many an infidel and marksman. Those who have wagered, well, now that just couldn't have happened. It's an impossibility. But you and I know that with God all things are possible, to borrow the language of Matthew 19, 26. And so it was that there really was a man named Jonah. Our Lord, in fact, lifted this out of the veil of ambiguity when He said in Matthew 12, verse 40, that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the Lord likened, you see, something about the very nature of His time spent in the grave to the very same length of time that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. Jonah was a real man. He was a prophet. Maybe not the best one, admittedly, but nonetheless a prophet of God. As you and I proceed to study then about Jonah, wouldn't it be fair to say that our youngsters likely are very familiar with the book of Jonah? They learn about him in Sunday school classes, and they appreciate the nature of what happened in terms of his disobedience. Why don't we, you and I, make application, though, of that book to ourselves as well as we studied in the succeeding Sunday nights? As we turn the slide and come to our next consideration, why don't we then begin in chapter 1? And as we do that, let's notice immediately how chapter 1 begins. For God wastes no time. He says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. You notice immediately that mention is made of a gentleman named Jonah. The first record we have of that man in the Bible takes us back to 2 Kings. Isn't it interesting that the same person we have record of here, 
the historical section of the Old Testament highlights his labors and even the time frame in which he endeavored. About 770 B.C., there was a king in, nor in the northern kingdom of Israel whose name was Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. In fact, we are told that during his reign is, was the life and times of Jonah the prophet. And that helps us appreciate something a bit interesting. Of all of the minor prophets, Jonah was the first one chronologically, apparently. All the others came in later kings of the Old Testament, but Jonah was actually a prophet of God laboring in that time of Jeroboam II. And so you and I notice that almost 800 years before our Savior ultimately was born in Bethlehem of Judea, there was a man named Jonah who served as a prophet of God. And this little book is the greatest testimony and record we have of his endeavors. God's command was very specific, wasn't it? Arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah was told exactly where to go and to preach to Nineveh, and God even explained something. It's a great city, he said. And furthermore, this city is such that their wickedness has come up before me. Let's ponder some of the interesting features about that commandment, if you would, with me. I've tried to highlight some of them on the slide. First of all, we immediately come face to face with Nineveh. Perhaps we're not as familiar with Nineveh as with some other Bible cities, but nonetheless, it was a great city. Very large, very populated. Assyria was such that that kingdom's capital was none other than Nineveh. Nineveh was an old city, an ancient city as well. The first mention of it in all of the book of God is in Genesis chapter 10. If we revisit that early stage in time not long after the flood of Noah's day, we remember that the descendants proceeded to construct and build a city called Nineveh. And yet, over the intervening centuries, it became an exceedingly powerful and mighty place. Again, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was to that place God told Jonah to go and to preach. Go there and cry against it, he said. That language, to cry against it, identifies the power and the strength of Jonah's message. It was a message of God through him. No wonder in light of that I would ask you to notice. There were some things for which Nineveh was known. The Old Testament highly records these things for us. It was known for its cruelty. They, in fact, treated prisoners exceedingly badly. Not only that, known for its idolatry known for its wickedness and inhumanity. All those things are highlighted in 2 Kings chapters 15 to 18, as well as the entire three-chapter book of Nahum. All of them tell us about the kinds of activities so common in this ancient place of Nineveh. And yet it was to them that God told Jonah to go and preach. It may be at this point any of us could pause and consider this one probably would have suspected that they would not have been terribly favorable to the message, whatever that case was. You appreciate that those last remarks are now ours. From time to time, we'll pause and see if we can appreciate a lesson. And based on this little commandment, isn't it interesting to contemplate this one? You and I are so often in a position to appreciate God's chosen people of the Old Testament those children of Israel, the children of Abraham through Jacob, the very ones to whom the Ten Commandments and the entirety of the law of Moses was given, 
and maybe we don't as often consider that God also had an interest in those individuals that were not the children of Israel. Case in point, God here told a prophet to go to Nineveh, a heathen people, a pagan people, those who weren't subject to the law of Moses. And yet God was interested in their well-being, interested in their soul salvation, interested in them appreciating that which only the God of heaven can make available. Our lesson is this one. There has never, ever been a single person on earth who was not subject to the laws of God. Now we know that the children of Israel answered to the law of Moses. That was the law given to them, Deuteronomy 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. But we may remember prior to the giving of the law of Moses, there were other individuals who served God through a patriarchal system, a system in which God bequeathed and delivered to the patriarchs and they in turn shared it. Here was a city, Nineveh. God expected some things of them and He sent Jonah to warn them, to urge them, to admonish them. And as we'll learn when we get to chapter 3, it was basically a lesson that went like this, repent or perish. That's strong language. Here was Jonah, a lone prophet, sin, and he said, repent or perish. May we appreciate the fact there has never, ever been a single person living on the face of this planet that has not been subject to an inappropriate law of God whether it was the patriarchal system that continued throughout Old Testament days, even for those not under the law of Moses. And today, of course, it's the law of Christ that reigns supreme. We appreciate that Jesus, did He not, with a nail-pierced hand, pointed to a world and said, Go and preach the gospel to every creature. That leaves nobody out. Mark 15, or rather Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And so it was that we appreciate here an interesting fact about the sovereignty of our God who had an interest in the people of Nineveh. As we close that slide, it perhaps makes us then question, what about it that developed next? We only looked at the first two verses a moment ago. Let's look nextly about Jonah's response. Verse number 3 simply states it like this, But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that here God's commandment was exceedingly plain. You go to Nineveh and cry against it. Their wickedness has come up before me. They have not attended to that which was proper and right in my sight. And yet the very next verse says, Jonah went down to Joppa, and there he found a ship that was headed to Tarshish. And he paid the fare, and he seemingly happily went aboard. Here's a map that highlights from a geographical standpoint what was on Jonah's mind. You'll notice down to the bottom right as you're looking at the slide, you'll notice the entirety of that given land of Palestine. But Joppa is a city in large letters. I've tried to highlight where that is. Joppa will later play other significant roles as we study later in the New Testament even. But for now, Joppa went to this, or rather Jonah went to this seaport town known as Joppa. Now, if you would, go ahead and find on the map where Tarshish is. 
remember, Nineveh was basically just somewhat north and east of where Jonah then was. And yet he went about as far in the known world as he could possibly have desired to go. See Tarshish way over here to the far left? Jonah had in mind to go as far as he could imagine going from this commandment God had given. You'll notice this place known as Tarshish is basically in modern-day Spain. Isn't that remarkable? Jonah had a desire to go that far and to flee from the presence of the Lord. And you'll notice he intended to go that great distance in light of getting away from God's commandment. Let's go back to that previous slide, if we might, for just a moment. You'll notice that there was a significant journey by ship that was ahead of Jonah as he desired to make his way to Tarshish. But along the way, of course, something happened. God sent out something. There are several things in this book that God sent. You probably can already mention several of them. Here, He sent a great wind. Later, it's going to be a great fish. Later yet, it will be a gourd. And later yet, it'll be a worm. God was in control of all of the intricate features of those things of Jonah's life. In this case, God sent a great wind. As God sent that great wind, it began to batter the ship, and the mariners were greatly concerned, so much so the text says they were fearful that the ship would be broken. Apparently, this storm, this wind was sufficiently strong they were actually concerned about the integrity of the ship. No wonder, as that slide proceeds to identify it, the mariners were greatly afraid. They began to petition and cry to all the various gods of themselves. But in the midst of all of that, notice what we read next, verses 4 and following. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man into his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. Though the mariners were so concerned, in fact, rather fearful, here was Jonah fast asleep. What a picture, what a portrait. Here was a man running from God here was a man blatantly disobedient and rebellious to the command of God, and yet he was asleep. While the others were very concerned about the weather and the storm and the shipworthiness of, of the actual boat. Perhaps this is time for a, another lesson. What does that maybe indicate, at least lesson-wise, for you and me to consider? Consider the conscience of this man named Jonah. He was running from God, and it didn't interrupt his sleep any. Isn't it still true that a person without a trained conscience, you can sleep through the greatest of dangers. In fact, you can leave this life headed for hell. And all the while you've been asleep. I wonder about that rich man in Luke 16. Do you suppose he slept well the night before he died? Do you suppose that it agitated or bothered him that, in fact, he wasn't right with the Lord? It causes you to second guess, doesn't it? Doesn't it highlight for us how strongly we need to make sure that we train our conscience along the line of what's good so that it will be agitated and bothered when we do that which we shouldn't or fail to do that which we should. We read in 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 to 3, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, 
giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy, you know, don't you, that there are going to come times and the moments when, in fact, individuals will give heed to and proceed to follow seducing spirits and devilish doctrines. Paul, what of it? He goes on to explain, their conscience is seared with a hot iron. There's a great warning for each of us too, isn't it? May we not like be like Jonah here that we can blatantly disobey God and it not bother us. We want to have a tender heart, a heart that is readily able to appreciate those mistakes and that it should agitate us to the point we would rush back to the side of the Master. Jonah wasn't in that position, was he? That's not a good compliment to him at all. Here he was asleep despite the fact he was running from God. I wonder what that suggests about the shipmaster and others who found him asleep in the midst of such dire circumstances. Let's look forward to the next section of our lesson. We pass by our map. If you'll notice I'd entitled it, Jonah Runs. He tried to, didn't he? However, the God of heaven knew where he was. Let's proceed in our reading then in chapter number 1. Verse number 6 says, So the shipmaster came to him, that's Jonah, and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be, that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, Every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and what people art thou? Pausing at that point, might we fill in another detail or two? So here in the midst of this very difficult circumstance, the shipmaster comes and finds Jonah asleep. He wakes him up, and he begins to say to him in verse number 6, What do you mean, sleeping? Don't you realize the trouble that we're in, the difficulty in which the ship now finds itself? You'll notice from the language, Jonah was admonished, call on thy God. Here was even the shipmaster urging him to be earnest and fervent in prayer for the benefit and aid of himself as well as all on board. Amazing, even the shipmaster, it seems, had a keener appreciation of the moment than Jonah did. But look at what came next. Verse 7 says that they proceeded to cast lots. You and I might pause for a moment. Now today we likely would not consider ourselves in that position. But in that ancient day, the lot carried, of course, the information relative to how they so often chose to behave and act. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the result of the lot was of the Lord. Of all the people on that ship, the lot fell upon Jonah. No doubt God had something to do with that, of course. You'll notice in light of it, they proceeded then to ask Him. So Jonah, the lot has fallen on you. Why is then this evil come upon us? The mariners seemed to understand this was no ordinary storm. It wasn't just a common storm they had witnessed many times on the Mediterranean. They appreciated something about it, intended to convey the fact that it was caused by somebody. Their faithlessness, the difficulties that surrounded their lot. Verse 8 then asks this question. 
For whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? And what people art thou? Can you imagine that series of questions for a prophet of God? Here was a man who was a prophet. Tell us what your occupation is. Suppose Jonah said, I'm a prophet. I'm sure they'd be tempted to say, well, you're a pretty sorry one. God told you to go to Nineveh, and where are you going? Or I suppose that in light of asking him, what country are you from? Did you note those questions? They asked Jonah these things, and do you suppose his face turned red? Do you suppose he felt a bit ashamed as to what he needed to answer in truth? Jonah hadn't behaved very well in light of the commandment God had given. At the bottom of that slide, you notice that perhaps the ridicule that came Jonah's way leads us to notice what came next. Jonah did admit to them the truth. Note verse 9. He said unto them, I am in Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. That very God that Jonah was running from, he now at least found enough courage to admit to them, I serve the God of heaven, the one that made the sea and the dry land. And verse 10 says, Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? I can't imagine Jonah had a very good answer. God gave you a command. You have admitted you're a servant of His. Why are you running from Him? Verse 10 ends like this. For the men knew that He fled from the presence of the Lord because He told them. That same man that was running from God, that was asleep in the side of the ship, now in the face of this danger and difficulty, he made confession of those things. As we come to the bottom of that slide, you'll notice the plot only thickens for Jonah. For verse number 11 says, Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took Jonah up and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vials. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As they continued to pepper Jonah with questions, you'll notice in verse 11 they said, What can we do that we may then calm this sea so that we perish not? Jonah said in verse 12, Take me up. And throw me overboard. And did you notice the confidence with which he asserted the reasoning behind it? It says, I know, verse 12, that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Jonah came to realize what his disobedience was causing. He came to realize the terrible difficulties surrounding not only himself, but for that cause others were suffering mightily. 
it is with those things in mind. Let's look at some additional thoughts on this next slide. How about lesson number three? So far, having looked at two lessons drawn from this chapter, I've simply entitled this one, The Consequences of Disobedience. I'm sure for at least a few moments, maybe even a little while, we don't know how far the ship had made it on the Mediterranean Sea before the great tempest developed. Maybe for a while it seemed to be going well. Jonah was asleep, but things turned very quickly. The shipmaster woke him up, and likely not too many moments thereafter, after the questions and other things, when they realized they couldn't row that ship to land, Jonah found himself thrown overboard. Isn't it true? Sin can do that. What seems to be sailing so smoothly, once sin rears its head and the consequences develop in earnestness, isn't it so often true that things spiral downhill so fast? Look at some of these consequences you and I remind ourselves of. Jonah thought that he could run from God. He thought that he could ignore and neglect the commandment God had given, but it wasn't so. Doesn't that remind us of Numbers 32, 23? Be sure your sin will find you out. We can't hide from God and it's useless to try. We're told time and time again verses that read somewhat like this one. For the wages of sin is death. The inevitable consequences of sin is death. Didn't James put it like these? When we read in James chapter 1, verses 13 and following, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. The inevitable, eventual consequences are so negative. Surely in light of those things we notice, a lot of hardship developed really quickly for Jonah. I've tried to highlight some of those things near the top of that slide. And I've even placed in bold-faced letters. It's almost as though God etches it in every book of the Bible, but sin isn't worth it. Johnny Ramsey once stated it like this, that the high price of low living is just not worth it. And how often in the 66 Bible books are we told that? The Son of God allowed Himself to be hanged on a cross, reminding all of us of the enormity of sin and the great magnitude of its consequences. He came to save us from a devil's hell. Jonah learned a very valiant lesson here, at least in part. You just can't run from God. Didn't the psalmist put it like this in Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12, when he described that no matter where I go, you're already there. Many a time the human family has thought that they could ignore the commandments of God, that its consequences maybe could be averted, but it's never succeeded yet. Maybe you'll notice, I wonder how often Jonah thought when he was in the belly of that great fish, if I'd only just gone to Nineveh, if I'd only just done what God told me to do, I wouldn't be here now. But of course the consequences of sin have to be faced. What about a fourth lesson at the bottom of that slide? May I ask you to appreciate the rather interesting suggestion that Jonah made. After all, after it was realized that they couldn't row the ship to safety, 
Wasn't it true in verse number 11 when they petitioned Jonah, what may we do? It was he who said, cast me overboard. Have you ever thought of the things Jonah didn't say? Why didn't he say, offer sacrifice? Why didn't he say, make petition unto God? Why didn't he suppose, if I repent, all will be well? It was Jonah's suggestion that he be thrown overboard. Why did Jonah suggest that? The text doesn't exactly say. Here are some possibilities. Maybe they're worthy of our consideration. At the bottom of that slide, maybe Jonah was beginning to come to the realization of what he'd done. It is true that the words of verse number 12 explicitly read like this. He said, I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. It may well be that God had conveyed to him explicitly the reason for this great storm, and perhaps Jonah knew very well that that was the cause, and his own disobedience brought this about. But you'll notice that Jonah did make some other statements along the way. May I call to your attention, Jonah in verse 14 made a statement about those mariners. He said, I beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. Notice those mariners were in a position, they again were greatly fearful. Maybe Jonah saw in them a degree of concern he had not yet appreciated before. He actually would, maybe was concerned about their well-being. One more thought. What about that circumstance in 1 Chronicles 21.17? You may remember there was a scene in the life of David when he too saw a great number of people suffering because of a sin he had committed. And David was overwhelmed with grief. He was overwhelmed with a sense of, look what I have done and what it has caused others to suffer and endure. Maybe Jonah was beginning to appreciate this. At the very least today, can't we say how shameful it is of us if we in selfishness act in a way and it brings about great harm and ruin in the lives of others because of our own sin? Maybe Jonah was beginning to wrestle with this. Suffice it to say that three days and three nights in the whale's belly, I'm sure would make one keen in appreciation of many things. You and I notice as we come to verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. At the bottom of that slide, might we notice that a radical matter was suggested by Jonah. He said, Cast me overboard. May I suggest to you, Today, sometimes there's still need for radical action. After all, sin is that terrible, isn't it? That man who finds himself perhaps addicted or at least interested in pornography, what things might he do to help keep that sin at bay? Sell your TV if you need to? Cut off internet access and don't have a computer around? Some in our world would think not having a cell phone would be an extreme thing, but if it kept one out of hell, wouldn't it be worth it? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 18, verses 7 and 8, If your hand offends you, you're better off to cut it off than to have two hands to be cast into hell. Or if one foot causes you to sin, you'd be better off to cut it off than to have two to be cast into hell fire. 
if one eye causes you to sin, be better off to pluck it out, take it from you, than to have it lead you into sin. Sometimes you and I need to examine and analyze ourselves. May we never get comfortable with sin. Never allow the devil to encourage it to grow upon us. Jonah, in fact, sets before us all of these things and many more that we shall see in coming weeks. As we close chapter 1, may we notice that chapter 2 is another very short chapter. We'll take that one up next time. But in that chapter, we all know exactly where Jonah's going to be. We're going to read about a man that was in the belly of a great fish. I wonder what he was thinking. I wonder what he considered. I wonder what he would change if he could. We'll see all of that next time. Tonight, I hope that among other things, we've learned about the enormity of sin and its consequences in chapter 1. And we've learned about the decision that Jonah made as unwise as it was. These lessons are those I would suggest that we at least consider in passing. Among these matters, haven't we seen the explicit nature of God's command? It wasn't possible to misunderstand it. So too today, God's commands are crystal clear. There's no reason for misunderstanding. Ephesians 3 verse 4 highlights the fact of the understandability of the Word of God. However, with that, notice what comes next. You and I might, due to our failure and our weakness and the lack of training of our conscience, we might ourselves be in danger and sleep right through it, just like Jonah was doing. May we strive to not let ourselves fall in that position, but keep our senses spiritually tuned and razor sharp so that we can always do that which Jesus told us to do in that prayer of Matthew chapter 6. Keep us from the evil one. Finally, we close the lesson by noting the seriousness of the consequences of Jonah's disobedience and even the radical suggestion that he made. Tonight it might be that there's someone in the audience who yourself are apart from God. Though the Son of God died on the cross for you, and perhaps even at one time you were faithful, but you have allowed that condition to lapse. You realize Jesus still wants you at His side. He wants you to be a faithful servant of His, devoted and dedicated, and He invites you to come back to His side. If you have public sin in your life, why not confess them and repent of them? Invite us to pray to God for you. If you, though, have never become a Christian, there will never be a better night than this one, the 17th day of July, 2016. If we could assist you in being baptized into Christ, we'd, we would very much be excited to assist you. This hymn of invitation has been chosen. It's a convenient time, and if someone would like to come, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?